0: Can y'all hear me back there? Yeah. All right. If I can get your attention, we'll uh, go ahead and get started. As you hopefully know, uh, this is an eight-week series in the in the book of Isaiah. And uh, this is lesson two out of eight in the book of Isaiah. And we're primarily in Isaiah 6 today. So if you have your Bible or electronic device. Uh, I I announced last week that um, if you want me, I'm not going to hand out hard copies of the lessons, the questions, the study questions this time. Uh, I'm just asking you if you want to let me know, if you want me to send those to you uh, by email, give me your email or uh, tell me if I already have your email to send them to you and I'll put you on that distribution list. Uh, it's a separate distribution list from the other. So just because you're on the other list doesn't mean you're going to get them. You have to tell me this is a different distribution list because some some people you know don't care about the questions or don't want to do them, so I'm not going to send them to everybody, but just the people that want them, all right? so. Uh, If you you want them, let me know, and uh, why some of you didn't get them this time, I have no idea, but I do know that there was a couple of people that, you know, on the list where I asked you to put your email address down. Several of you wrote in hieroglyphics, and um, so that may be one of the problems, I have no idea what some of those words and letters were that y'all wrote, so uh, uh, if you think that might be the problem, you might try to print it out for me this time. Well, do you have a way of telling, if we do the questions after you send them to us? I, I do with you. I... <laughs> okay. All right, um, so we're in Isaiah 6 today which is a very interesting uh, chapter. And our movie clip today that relates to that is from uh, one of Jim Carrey's movies, Liar, Liar, in which Jim Carrey is kind of a crooked lawyer, but in his mind, he's a really good guy. He does a lot of good things, and he's he's just a okay Everything's fine. He's happy with himself. And then his five-year-old son prays, or, or makes a wish, actually, on his birthday, that Jim Carrey would have to tell the truth that he couldn't tell a lie. And from that point on, Jim Carrey is very aware of his shortcomings. Now, can you imagine if you had to tell the absolute perfect truth all the time? Man, that would be rough, and he he found out the hard way. And of course, again, that, that's the, the point of today's lesson, is that we all think we're just fine, everything's good, you know, we're, we've got it all together. But then, you know, if you're confronted with something a situation like that, then you're just painfully, suddenly aware of who you really are and what you really are, and that's what happens in today's lesson and there's a lot of things uh, going on in today's lesson in Isaiah 6 it's really loaded it's rich it's full and it's a very difficult to take it all in but I think if I had to boil it down to one thing that, that we really latch on to in this study uh, in chapter 6 I would say it's anthropology. Anthropology is a Greek word I'm sure you've heard of it that means the study of mankind. What, what is the study of the human nature? What is the human nature like? Who are we and, and what makes us tick? And it's very important. Uh, Isaiah is going to see that his view on his anthropology, what he thinks the nature of man is, is uh, radically wrong. It's going to be radically changed by his experience in today's lesson in chapter 6. He's going to be taken up to heaven, and he's going to see the glory of God, and it's going to make him painfully aware of the nature of man, the the incredible vast difference between God's holiness and ours. So it's going to change his uh, view of God. Uh, It's going to change his view of religion, sin, salvation, and really, you know, his whole belief system. Unfortunately, the world we live in, the people we live in, and, and maybe even ourselves, the world's view of the nature of man, is not biblical. It's it's you know basically I'm okay, you're okay, you know I'm doing great, I'm a good person, I'm this that and the other, you know I got no worries kind of about me. Now I'm worried about you, <laughs> and I could spend all day criticizing you. I could roast you like that guy did, but if, when I think of myself. And the base nature of human race, I think, you know, pretty positive stuff. That's kind of the way the world looks at it. Uh, Mankind's basically good with the potential for evil, I know, but they're basically good, right? Uh, And that's not biblical. The biblical view is just the opposite. And Isaiah learns that in today's lesson. So his view of God, Isaiah's view of God changed uh, because uh, his view of the nature of man changed. What what he was like changed radically. Uh, Before he thought he was a good person and he was religious and he did a lot of good deeds. He leads a good life. He deserves the best. Right? After though after he saw the glory of God, after this trip to heaven, it's completely changed. Now he's humbled. He's sober and realistic in his view of himself. He has no self-reliance. I can't do it. Suddenly it's basically you know, I am a person that is unclean and without hope because I've seen what's good and right and true and it's not me. Before he had pride, now he has no pride. Before he thought he had all these accomplishments and was such a good person. Now he sees that he's not. You know, the human race thinks of themselves. People love to say, I'm a self-made man. And they, in their pride, you know, they swell up. And I always want to say, you're a self-made man? That's the horror of unskilled labor that you're speaking (laughs) of. Uh, So before he had that pride, after, the only pride he had was in God and his relationship to God. So now he sees God as the only thing to look up to and to aspire to. So what happened in Isaiah 6? Isaiah got a close-up view of God's glory. He was taken up to heaven and saw God's glory, God's holiness and righteousness. So before he he just thought of that in terms of of himself really, of doing the right thing, of being a good person, etc. But now he's face to face in the presence of God. And the text says that the heavenly host was saying about God, explaining who God is, holy, holy Holy, repeated three times uh, for emphasis. Because in Hebrew, you know, the original language here, uh, they didn't have really words for good, better, and best. You know, they didn't have, they, so they repeated for emphasis. So to say it three times like that is to say God has maxed out holiness. You know, one to ten, he's the ten. We're way below that. And he, he became aware of that by seeing what true holiness really is you know, revelation fifteen four says that God alone is holy, no no man is so what is holy if that's the difference between us and God, what is holy? what does it mean? What does that word mean? Uh, the Hebrew means uh, to be set apart to be separate from all other things, to, to be distinct so God the the Father, the creator of all things, is distinct from his creation, distinct, set apart from a fallen world, a fallen human nature. So he is different in that way from us, separated from us. There is a great chasm between us and him because of this holiness. Secondly, uh, it's purity. He is pure. He is never defiled he's absolutely perfect and you know when you think about that uh human race mistakes are pretty common right mistakes are pretty common did anybody see the academy awards last night (laughs) if you didn't see it uh, they announced the best picture the wrong one (laughs) and the whole casting crew comes up on the stage and they actually handed the Oscar to them. So they're standing there getting ready to make their acceptance speech and thank every known person, you know. And the guy comes out from Pricewaterhouse and says, grabs the mic and says, there's been a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and La La Land, or didn't win, Moonlight won or something, you know. And so they come up. So now you've got both groups up there and they're going, wait a minute. Uh, I, I didn't actually see it. But uh, I read about it and saw the replay. It was was really a fiasco. Uh, It made me think of last year, you know, in the uh, Miss Universe pageant, Steve Harvey (laughs) announced the wrong winner. That was an incredible fiasco. And, you know, when we see things like that, we just say, oh, they just made a mistake, you know, it's no big deal. Everybody, you know, makes a mistake every now and then, blah, blah, blah. But it just points out the difference between us and God. We don't think of it. That way, though, we just kind of overlook everything that's wrong with the human race and overlook everything that's wrong with us. Uh, One guy in a sermon said one time something that that was incredibly profound. He said, do you know why a fish does not know that it's wet? I went, what? (laughs) A fish doesn't know it's wet because it's immersed in the water. And mankind doesn't know of its mistakes and its evil and its sin because they're immersed in it. They live in a world of that. We live in a buyer beware world. You know that. People will sell you anything you'll buy. They'll tell you any lie. You know that. You've seen the uh, infomercials. You've had the calls from brokers from New York or wherever selling stuff. They'll do anything. You can't believe a word they say. This is the world we live in, and we're so used to it. We just kind of overlook everything. So we have a skewed view of the human race. And therefore, because we don't realize that we're sinners, we don't realize the mistakes we make, then we don't understand the difference between us and God. And not understanding God's holiness, we don't understand how we could be eliminated, kept out of heaven. Because we're a good person. Really? Only God is good. And that's what he finds in today's lesson. That's what Isaiah finds out. So, on the other hand, what, what makes God of Israel better or different set apart from all the other gods and all the other religions? If you've ever studied you know, the Greek gods, for instance, uh, they very much have all the uh, characteristics of the human race. They're selfish, they're capricious, they're, they're angry, they're, they hurt people, they are jealous of each other. I mean, uh, they're very much like the human race. But the God in heaven, the God of Israel, the one true God, is perfectly holy and pure without any flaw, you see. Not at all like the human race, completely opposite from us by his separation from us and the purity that he has. So somebody once said, you know, I was talking about the the base nature of human race being totally hopeless and evil and depraved. And they go, boy, that's, that's depressing. Boy, that's negative. But you know what? The, the Bible's view, and you know why you're completely wrong? It's just the opposite. If we see in Isaiah 6 today, we'll see the redemption that's available. It's a very positive thing to see the truth about yourself so that you can accept the redemption that God's offering. Because if you never see the truth, who needs a savior? If you're perfectly fine with who you are and what you are and what you do, if you have no errors, then why would you need a savior? So it's actually a wonderful thing. It's a very positive message. That since this is true, God out of his love has done what is necessary to save you and have you be forgiven. And not only that, it frees you up for the first time. Before, you'll see it in Isaiah, he was bound up by his pride. He's this wonderful guy in Jerusalem who basically lives for himself. Like the rest of us do. And why do we do that? Not only is he selfish and becomes aware of that selfishness, not only does he have that incredible pride, but also he doesn't serve God because like all the people in the world, it's like, okay, peer pressure. I don't want to be rejected by anybody. I don't want anybody to think I'm like a holy roller or that I'm this or that. And so you don't want to go out and share Christ with people Uh, You want to like make that a private thing or whatever, right? But for the first time, Isaiah is now free. He's free. The pride is gone. He doesn't care about peer pressure anymore. Now that he fully sees who he really is and who God is and what God has done for him, when you fully understand how bad you are, when you fully understand the grace of God then, Because God has moved a mountain of sin for you. Then all of a sudden, everything's different. Now you're so appreciative because you understand how much God has done, and it changes everything. Before, his pride, his ego, his selfishness had him all bound up. Now he's free. He's free to serve God and be who God originally intended him to be. A man of God, a child of God that serves and glorifies God. So, uh, Isaiah's whole world is going to be rocked. It's going to be changed dramatically in today's lesson. Uh, Just a quick reminder from last week. Uh, It's kind of interesting the structure of the book of Isaiah We looked at uh, chapter 1 through 5 last week. 1 through 5 is not chronological. 1 through 5 is like a state of the union message. Isaiah's ministry actually begins in chapter 6. So 1 through 5, the author uh, laid out the state of the union of Israel to let us know why God is calling Isaiah in chapter 6. Here's the state of the union in chapter 1 through 5 of Israel. And so then in chapter 6, God is calling Isaiah to go to Jerusalem and tell them the truth. Warn them about coming judgment if they don't repent. And so in chapter 1, uh, we saw <laughs> that uh, the focal point is the depths of Israel's sin uh, their rebellion, their corruption is brought out. He uses two images to depict the nation's spiritual condition. One is it's like Israel's like a bruised and wounded body that's had a terrible beating because of who they are. And yet they still don't respond. They're also like, he says, uh, an abandoned hut in a barren field, neglected because of their sin. And they need to wake up. It's not because they're not religious. They are religious. And he goes through two alternate but opposite ways of dealing with Israel's alienation. One is what they're doing, hypocrisy and religion, fake religion really. In verse chapter 1, 10 through 15, he talks about you come with me, you come to church every Sunday, in our case, Saturday for them. So it's not that you don't come, you come. It's not that you don't worship, you worship, you pray, you give, you make sacrifices, but God looks at it all and says, it's trash. Because your heart's not in it. You do this on the Sabbath, and then you go live however you want to for yourself for the next six days. This coming to me is like, okay, I'm going to try to make up for everything I did in the last six days today so I can go back and do it again tomorrow. There's no heart. There's no truth in it. There's no sincerity. It's all fake. That never goes on here, is it? There's no hypocrisy in the church here, is it? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? And Isaiah now is going to see that even in himself. God used to just come and go through the motions because my parents brought me up that way and I'm obligated to do that. Plus, this is a religion. If I just keep this religion, everything will be cool. No, God says, not a chance. If your heart's not in this, if you're not going through a you know, spiritual growth, if your life's not changing through this worship, it's like garbage to God. And we even, he even says, don't give me any more money. Has any of your pastors ever preached that? No? And so the present circumstances, he says, have consequences and God is going to do something. And then in chapter 5 last week we saw uh, the great image of of the uh, vineyard. God said Israel is like a vineyard that God planted. He brought them out of Egypt, they were in slavery, brought Israel out of uh, Egypt, out of slavery, took care of them through the wilderness, took them to the promised land, gave them the choice land, It was already cultivated buildings and cities already built and he brought them into it and gave it to them and he says Israel should have responded by bearing fruit for God and in the image of the vineyard in chapter 5 he says it's like a vineyard Uh, a landowner cleared the land, cultivated it, built a wall around it to protect us, a watchtower, put a wine press in it, planted the choicest vines in the vineyard. What was his expectations? He expected a good crop of fruit. But he said he didn't get it. So he asked the people of Israel, what should he then do? And so basically what he's saying is, when God brought Israel into the land, the people of God in the land, what He intended was their faithfulness, their belief, their obedience, their righteousness. He, he expected silver, but He got dross. He expected faithfulness, He got idolatry. Righteousness, He got murder and crime. Uh, he expected the leadership to be good. Instead, it was not. Uh, and on and on and on. So God had a right to expect all these things but he got something just the opposite. And we find out in chapter 5 God's view of the nature of true religion is not just going through the motions but it is relational. God expects us not only to believe in him but to live by faith, to trust him, to love him. And that will separate us from the rest of the world and in that relationship he also expects you might say performance he expects obedience good deeds our love God has the right to dictate the way we live to expect us to obey him and to do good works for him so what is God going to do He's going to judge them, the prophet says, in order to purge, in order to purify them, in order to get their attention to bring them back. So that's the warning, the state of the union and the warning that Isaiah gives. So now in chapter 6, if, if you look there with me, again, uh, after the state of the union, now in chapter 6, you have the actual beginning of the ministry of Isaiah by the calling. God is going to call him in this kind of a crisis situation by taking him up to heaven and uh, God did this to about half a dozen people in the Bible namely uh, not only Isaiah but Ezekiel, Job. Um, In the New Testament you've got John and Paul and all of them had the same Response when they saw the glory of God, the holiness of God in heaven. When they were taken up, given a vision, or maybe actually their spirit was taken up, we don't know. But they all had the same response. They fell on their face as if dead. It was so awesome, so incredible, so amazing, so mind-blowing, they couldn't take it in. And they were all painfully aware Uh, now as never before in who they really were in contrast, in comparison to the holy, holy, holy God. And so he's scared to death and he's going to yell out the first thing that came to his mind was woe is me for I am unclean. I think it's probably the first time in his life he fully understood that. And it's going to change everything the way he thinks and what he does and what he's uh, going to do in the future. So in uh, verse 1 through 4, chapter 6, 1 through 4, you see the vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, in, in chapter 1 he told us he had a ministry during, that spanned four kings. And so the day of Uzziah, that first king that's mentioned, the day he dies, is the day that this vision uh, happened. And King Uzziah, if you look in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, you can see, he was one of the few good kings of Judah. And so it's kind of like God knows, okay, now that good king Uzziah's gone, his grandson Ahaz is going to take over, and he's a bad actor. And God knows that Israel's gonna need a prophet. Israel's gonna need a prophet to go to them and tell them, warn them. And so God calls him, calls Isaiah here. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, God in heaven on his throne, lofty and exalted. He's above all things, he's high and exalted over all of creation. God, as the Creator, lived, existed before the creation. Therefore, God lives outside of the creation. And that's where He is taken to see that glorious state of God on His throne. Now, we know from John 12, 41 in the New Testament, because I know you're probably thinking, I thought nobody would ever seen God. Didn't he tell Moses nobody can see my face and live? Uh, Yeah, so we're told in John 12 what he actually saw was the glory of God. Just like Moses did on the mountain. He never saw God specifically. He saw the glory, the awesome glory of God. And that's what he sees here. Uh, He sees that glory the high and exalted God on His throne with the train of His robe filling the temple. So in spite of all the junk that's going on in the world during Isaiah's time or now, when you look around you go, man, this is a mess. What did God do? Take a vacation? Did He just abandon us? No, we see here God is still on his throne. No matter what's going on on planet Earth, God is on his throne. Meaning, he's in control. He's sovereign, all-powerful over all things. So he sees him there that way. And seraphim, these are angels. The word literally, Hebrew word means burning one. So they're angels that are just full of radiating the glory of God. Stood above him having six wings. These awesome spiritual creatures that minister to God. They cover his face. Two, he covered his feet. And two, he flew. And one called out to another. They were all calling out to each other, as I said before, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory comes out of heaven and is revealed even on earth. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So all of his senses are involved here. The sights are incredible. The sounds are incredible. The smell of the smoke. He felt the trembling, the shaking. But the main thing that moved, that changed Isaiah and provoked his response was the holiness of God. That's what shook him up. That's what humbled him. That's what convicted him and made him aware of his own unworthiness. And so, verse 5, his response. Isaiah's response. Woe is me for I am ruined. I thought I was great. I thought I was doing good. Of the people in Jerusalem, I'm one of the best. With that in a quarter, you still can't buy any coffee. <laughs> what does it take now? Five dollars to buy a cup of coffee? I got nothing. I'm ruined. I'm not at all in the good condition I thought I was in. Why? Because I realize now I am a man of unclean lips. I'm unclean. I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. He's painfully aware of that now. What made him aware of that? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because I have seen the glory and holiness of God, now I know who I am, a man of unclean lips. And so now in verse 6 and 7, that's Isaiah's proper response. So what is God's response going to be to Isaiah? Isaiah. Isaiah now is completely humbled and aware of who he really is. So what's God going to do? What's God going to do? Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels was sent over by God to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And so there was a a symbolic or maybe real altar there in heaven. And he took a burning coal and touched my mouth. It's like a purifying coal that the angel brings from God to cleanse Isaiah. And what is this? He says, behold, verse 7, After he touched his mouth, he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Notice the passive nature of that. He doesn't say because you're such a good guy and you did all these things and blah, blah, blah. No. It's just been taken away. You didn't do anything, but confess your sin, and God has taken it away. Atoned for your sin. Your sin is forgiven, covered up. So what just happened? God initiated the cleansing. Let's be clear. Just as he did us. He sent Jesus into the world to initiate our cleansing. The atonement. And God has accomplished everything that was needed to do. So what's the deal with the coal from the altar and all that? The altar represents where sacrifices for sin were made in the temple of Israel. And so uh, this sacrifice uh, in heaven, there, there's no animal sacrifices there, of course. So this sacrifice in heaven that we're seeing uh, was initiated by God could only be the atonement, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So this forgiveness, like ours, is based on that same sacrifice. And you may say, well, that happened many years later. This is 700 years before that. Same thing. Doesn't matter. Uh, We're told during the time of Abraham, Abraham was saved because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus. And the same thing for us. We live 2,000 years after Jesus. But in the forbearance of God, God knows that he has sent his son into the world to make that sacrifice for the sins who lived with people before, during, and after, in our case. And so this is representing that sacrifice, that atoning work that God accomplished so that Isaiah, and of course now us, could be forgiven. Our sins atoned for So that's what happened here. God initiated it. God accomplished it. And we're told that Isaiah now is forgiven. His iniquity is taken away. His sin is forgiven. Exactly like ours is. We believed. We came before God and we believed and we confessed our sin. And God provided a savior, an atonement for our sin as well. And so we are forgiven just as Isaiah was. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. So what did we say earlier about Isaiah? Why this was such a great thing? Isaiah before thought he had it all together. He was just some religious guy like most people are. Trying trying his best to be good and all that. But he was changed, right? Now he's painfully aware. Now he was humbled, which freed him up. Remember? Before he lived for himself because he's bound up with all the peer pressure and expectations of people. And that trying to be good enough all the time on my own merits. He's bound up. But now he's free. God has cut all the bindings and freed him now. So what can he do now? Before, if you're like me, you grew up, you're obligated to this. Uh, wake up, you've got to go to church. Why? Because I said so. I don't want to. Well, you have to. <laughs> then you have to go through all the traditional stuff at church. And, you know, why? Because this is what we do. This is what Christians do, you know. But now, that's the way he was. But now his heart's in it. His heart's in it. So what happens? God is going to say, who shall I I send? I've got a very, very, very difficult job that needs to be done. It's an important job. It's got all kind of risks involved. Who shall I send? And for the first time, voluntarily, purely because his heart's in it, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Look at it. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us and take the message? Isaiah then said, here I am, send me. Now that he's released from his previous sin, He's no longer bound up by his own pride and the peer pressure and the fear of rejection. He says, I'll go. Look at the message. You think this is going to be an easy job? (laughs) Look at this deal. What he's basically going to tell him, he says, I want you to go and deliver a horrible message (laughs) that nobody's going to like and they're going to dislike it so much they're going to be mad at you. They're going to beat you up, kick you around, put you in jail, and eventually they'll bump you off. Oh, I'll take that job. Let me Think about that. He's going to go preach the Word of God. The good news. And yet it's going to make them mad. They're going to get even worse than they already are. Look at, look, look at what God says. Verse 9. He said, God said, go and tell this people in Jerusalem, keep on listening, but do not understand. They keep hearing the Word of God, they don't get it. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Keep seeing the works of God and you don't get it. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. The message that Isaiah will speak, will actually cause them to be more insensitive, more hardened in their ways and against God. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. All four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all quote this passage explaining the rejection of Jesus as the Christ. People are saying, if if you're, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Messiah, why is the nation, why are the religious leaders rejecting you? And he quoted Isaiah 6, right here, 9 and 10. Even though it's the truth, It's actually going to make them mad and even harder in their hardness of hearts. And if you're like me, you're going, how could that be? I surely don't understand that. How can it make it worse? Or why would God give them a message that would make it worse? Every time, you know, in the New Testament... Every time they heard the gospel, every time they saw Jesus, as you go through the progression of the Jesus stories in the gospels, people came away either closer to God or further away. So the people who rejected him, they got worse. They got madder. They got harder, more determined to kill him. Why? Paul, I think, explains it well in 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16. In his ministry, as he preaches the gospel, he says it's, it's like an aroma. You know, when you smell something and your senses immediately tell you good or bad. You know, like you smell some really good home cooking in your kitchen as you're walking through and you go, ooh, I can't wait for dinner. But if you're in there and a skunk was in there <laughs> and you smelled the skunk... That'd be different. They're both aromas. But what Paul's saying, it's the same gospel, but to some they smell this sweet, beautiful aroma, the aroma of eternal life. But to others who reject, they smell the stench of death. The same smell, but it has two different meanings. To the different people. So, to those who believe, it's a sweet aroma of eternal life, and those who don't, it's a stench of death. So, when they, when they hear the gospel, put it another way, when people hear the gospel, they either hear the love of God, which is what we hear, or if they've rejected Him, what do they hear when they hear the gospel? They've said, yeah, that's what they always say to me so many times when I've Shared with people who reject it and say, Are you saying I'm going to hell? No, I didn't say that. I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan and has provided His Son to die on the cross so you can be saved. Sounds like you're saying I'm going to hell. You see? That's what God's telling Isaiah. That's the message of Isaiah. The one person. It's a fragrant aroma to the other. It's the stench of death. And as they hear the stench of death, they hear that the wrath of God is coming. They get harder in their convictions to stop it or matter at this insult. And that's what Isaiah was up against. And so, naturally, in verse 11, when you know that's going to be the uh, response you get, <laughs> what are you going to say? Verse 11. Uh, How long do I have to do that? (laughs) And he was answered until cities are devastated and without inhabitants, so he said, you know, in your message you're going to tell them, if you don't repent, if you don't come back, then I'm going to send a nation, Babylon, to completely destroy you and wipe you out and leave nothing and take all survivors into captivity. So, do, so preach until that happens, until that judgment comes. Verse 12, The captivity the Lord has removed men far away, in the forsaken places or many in the midst of the land. So he's prophetically saying that the judgment is coming. Tell them about it. Try to get them to repent. But I'm telling you, Isaiah, it's not going to be easy. They're not going to Listen. Then in the New Testament, Jesus comes with the final gospel, the final word of God, and he gets the same response. So he quotes Isaiah. This is just like Isaiah, Jesus says. They hear the truth, and it's really good news, and it's all about the love of God, but they get mad about it, and they turn against the very provision that God has sent to save them. And their heart is further hardened until they did what? They crucified God's son because of it. And it was predicted right here in Isaiah 6. So Isaiah's life has changed and he's going to go forth as God's messenger and he's going to tell the good news to whoever will listen. Unfortunately, not many will. Uh, the nation certainly won't. Individuals will, just like during the time of Christ. The nation itself wouldn't, the leadership wouldn't, but individuals do. And, and they are saved. There's always a remnant that God has. So let me conclude with this uh, story. You may have heard it before. That the emperor of Austria, you know, back in the 19th century, Franz Joseph, died and went to the gates of heaven. And he's knocking on the doors trying to get into heaven. Franz Joseph, this great rich man. And a voice called out and said, Who is there? Who are you? The emperor of Austria and Hungary. Franz Joseph. And inside heaven the voice says, Never heard of you. (laughs) He knocks again. Who's there? The conqueror of most of Europe. The voice says, never heard of you. He knocks again. Who's there? The richest man in the world. Beat it. We're unimpressed. (laughs) Finally, he knocks and they say, who are you? Who's there? He says, a wretched sinner who needs the grace of God, which can only be found in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And the voice says, hey, I know you. Come on in. Enter. And that's the way it'll be for us as well. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with this great story of Isaiah. And we see his life-changing experience. And Lord, thank you that we've had the same experience coming to Christ and having our lives changed, aware of who we are aware of your holiness. And the only way we can have that holiness that we need for eternal life is through Christ our Savior, and in his name we pray, amen. Amen.